Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. Today on our panel, we have Amy Knight. Hello, back from Nashville. Steve Edwards. Hello from Portland. AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from Cloudy Pleasant Grove. And our very special guest, Ben Farrell. Hi, Ben. Hello. I guess I should say where I'm from, too. It's Oakland, California. Nice to meet you. Great to meet you as well. And I forgot to mention where I'm coming from. I'm coming from Tel Aviv, where, like I said to, to the panel before, winter has finally arrived and it's a really cold 70 degrees here. But it is raining, so it is winter. At least it counts as winter in Parody. Anyway, so Ben, today we want to talk with you about various things, I think, but more, uh, most significantly about web components, because I believe you've written a book about it. I have, but yeah. You, yeah, before we begin about that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, let's let's start with this weather thing. I am a transplant to California, and it's around 50 degrees here, so a little colder than Tel Aviv. But I'm totally a wimp now because I'm from the East Coast. I'm usually I'm usually better in the cold weather than this, and 50 degrees is nothing. But now I'm just a wimp, so I feel cold. Anyway, my name is Ben Farrell. I, I'm a prototyper at Adobe. So we, we work in that like middle ground between design and development, and you know, bring designs to life and see how they fare in the. In the like as an actual product. So that's what I do for a living. On the side, I explore lots of things. And lately it's just been a lot about web components. So I've been you know, presenting on web components. I've been blogging about them and it culminated in me writing a book last year on like these standards that make up web components. So I'm really happy that it's in my tool belt now so I can explore like lots of different technologies all with using you know, web components as the basis. So that's kind of where my head is right now. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Cool. And I've just posted the link to the book so our listeners can find it in the show notes. Yeah, I should mention so- it's Manning Press, by the way, Manning Publications. Mm-hmm. Web components in action. So, yeah, Amy. I was gonna say, I want to like, I want to start off by asking a question because I, I don't know. Whenever I feel like web components still get a bad rap and people mm-hmm. kind of like turn their noses up. Yeah. So before, like, before we get started and possibly lose listeners, <laughs> in, in your best sixty seconds, why should people listen to the remainder of this episode? Why? What's different about web components now? You know, we're like almost 2021 that people should be interested. Well, for me, web components have finally gotten to the point where it's not it's not exciting for me anymore because it's a stable technology. Before I was excited about web components because they were kind of emerging, like the browsers didn't support them. You needed these wacky polyfills. There was all sorts of different directions people were taking with them. And if you were developing with them like prior to last year, maybe two years ago, it was kind of a mess. And that's just how standards work. So as things have come together, it's a lot more stable of a picture and something you can use now. So to me, it's just like web components are kind of boring now. It's 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 the stuff that people are building with web components that's exciting. So that's my take on, you know, why if you had a bad taste in your mouth about web components before, you should give them a second look. Cool. I love hearing that things are boring. That's exciting to me. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I when agree. when a technology gets boring, when commits stop going in, when the project <laughs> is stale because it's complete, 
That's a great I mean, time. There's there's goodies on the horizon to enhance this thing, but I think no, 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 no. Are... Don't ruin it for me. Don't ruin it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was getting bought into the idea that this was something usable and practical. I'm just trying to have it both ways, dude. <laughs> okay, but go go ahead. What's exciting on the horizon? I'll just close my ears. No, I mean it's I mean lit element is this helper library that's that's really taken hold of for web components development. Um, so there's there's helper library. There's there's upcoming specs. There's like adopted style sheets that are actually in Chrome now. There's HTML templating where you can like it's not HTML templating. It's basically you can you can put an entire like shadow root in your markup without even having to write any JavaScript. So that's on the horizon as well. On the horizon as well, uh, you should be able to import CSS as like ES modules soon. So there's a whole bunch of things to make the experience better. But I feel like it's really stable right now. Yeah, but we we mentioned a lot of technical terms that might not be familiar to <laughs> listeners who are less knowledgeable about what web components True, are. True, yeah. So <laughs> maybe we can rewind a little bit and talk <laughs> about web components. What is this thing? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess riffing off my my shadow root name drop. So the 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 shadow DOM is probably my favorite web components feature. It's what it's one of the two main ones I think. There's custom elements which you can just say I have I have a, a JavaScript class and this class defines how I want this custom tag to work on my page. So I can make my own custom tags, drop them into HTML and as long as like the JavaScript instantiates that tag, uh, assigns a behavior to it all is good. The other part of web components is this whole concept of the shadow DOM. So the shadow DOM is this encapsulated, you can almost think of it as an iframe, but without the bad taste in your mouth. It, it's an encapsulated space where, you know, JavaScript can't easily be pierced in. So you can't come in from the outside and, and select DOM elements in there. Everything has to go through really a well-defined API. My favorite part about the shadow DOM though is CSS. So CSS doesn't pierce through the shadow DOM either. So I could I could have a button in my web component behind the shadow DOM, and I could just style it with a button selector. That's all I need because this button selector, it won't, it won't affect other buttons on my page outside the shadow DOM. So like style is really encapsulated in this one place and it really kind of leads you to just use simple CSS. You can use simple CSS again without having to worry about these large like SAS and less systems just because everything's so encapsulated and just works so well in a tiny scope like that. So those are the two main aspects of web components. Now, it seems to me that web components, at least mm -hmm. in the past, I don't know, you tell me how things are exactly now, but they seem to be in competition with frameworks, with the various frameworks. So various frameworks like React or whatever, Vue, mm -hmm. provide their own mechanism for defining components. You know, if you're working in React, you literally create your own quote-unquote DOM elements, which would have been either, again, also a JavaScript class or more recently just JavaScript functions using hooks. Mm -hmm. So how is our web components different or better than the componentization mechanisms introduced by various JavaScript frameworks. So it depends on who you ask. You know, saying they're better or worse than using a framework, I come from the place where I stopped I stopped my framework explorations with Angular because I felt like I'm spending too much time learning frameworks and dealing with frameworks to get to the actual like like my actual project. And so I had this whole notion in my head, I want to go frameworkless. 
and things were kind of a mess. So Web Components coming along and providing a, a standard way to make components without this massive framework that you need to buy into and you know learn, it's a huge win. But if you already know React and you know, already know how to get things done in there, you might say, well, I, I already have that. I, it's, it's already good to do a lot of things I can do in React I need to add, you know, helpers and libraries onto the, the the basic set of web component standards. So that's why people are kind of saying, well, web components are no good. They're just there. There are a couple different technologies that might make your life easier if you don't have a framework. But you know, I have React and it's all good. So there's a couple different you know points of view coming across there. But the but the deal is too, like if you're a framework author, you know, maybe React someday or maybe Vue someday. I think Angular. It's been a while since I have done anything with Angular, but I think Angular might be adopting this way of making web components because it's standard and all these other frameworks can follow. And just because you make something, a web component with these standards instead of the React way, you know, it doesn't, it, it could be at the base level of your framework and you could be using React someday far in the future and be using web components and not even knowing it just because the, these these components are a standard. They're a standard part of the web. So yeah, two different philosophies. Like you can you can start with you can. I like to start basically. I like to start small. I like to go no framework and then see where I go. Build up, take in exactly all the features I need, and that might mean bringing in helper libraries like lit HTML, lit elements. But the other, of course, like the other one, the other way to go is React, where you have everything there for you. Um, there's lots of documentation for it. And I think that's the kind of the difference these days. When people take a look at web components, they're like, I have so many options. I don't know where to begin. And I think that's a real problem. And I think we're seeing more and more things pop up, documentation, helper libraries that kind of steer you in the right direction. But that's kind of where web components are lacking today. So you said something that makes me want to ask a question because what yeah. you said kind of resonates with how I like to do is just like start. I I, I don't want to like bring something in mm -hmm. until I feel like I need it. So if I wanted to go the web components route, like what is what's kind of like a signal that maybe it's something I want to like, what's a pain point that you've experienced that then you decide like, okay, maybe I want to bring this in. Well, I think the, I think the biggest, the biggest pain point that's been solved by Google's Polymer effort with lit element, basically all the rage these days are declarative UIs. I'm late to the game. React kind of popularized these declarative UIs where you, you have a data model and you render based on that data model. With web components, with nothing else, you're probably doing something imperative. You're you're querying DOM elements and you're saying, do this. Whereas, like I said, with React, you're just rendering based on a model. So that's, and people really like that. I've, I've really started to like that. I can't, you know, now that I've gotten into that mode, I can't see doing anything else with my UI. So that's where lit HTML comes in. It's a it's a templating library that doesn't have the the virtual DOM overhead that React does. It kind of like does this weird thing behind the scenes where it sticks comments in and uh, into your HTML and like like kind of like ugh, hand hand does the differences that way. It's super tiny and super fast, but does let you do this declarative UI stuff. And then, of course, on top of that, if you go lit element extends the the web components API, the standard API, and does some extra things for you in terms of like managing style, just controlling the lifecycle a little more. So these are these are the core helpers that I kind of started using every day now, just because you know I started writing my own helpers for this, and I realized, hey, I'm just duplicating all this work that they did already and better. So. Why not just adopt lit, lit element? I'm kind of I'm kind of grumpy that way. I'm like, I don't want to use it, never gonna use it. And then I start writing my stuff and I'm like, okay, I'll use it. 
Well, at the end of the day, that's the purpose of uh, frameworks to mm -hmm. eliminate some of the boilerplate coding that we would otherwise have to do ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it kind of starts out like you you don't know what you need when you start exploring this space. And you're you're kind of like every every little paper cut you get, like, I need that. I need that. And then it's kind of rolls this big snowball. And you're like, OK, I guess I need at least a helper library, maybe not a framework, maybe just a helper library for now. So just to make sure that I understand LitHTML, and I also posted a link to that, mm -hmm. that's basically sort of mini framework on top of web components, or is that something else? It's it's completely standalone from web components. I would call it a small utility library rather than a framework. All it does is basically you create template literal string, and you can use this template literal string to assign to your, your uh, divs inner HTML. Your div in this case, for my case, is going to be a web component, but it could be anything. And so when you re-render based on changed stuff in your data model, changed, changed variables, it will only render the differences. So it's not going to re-render the whole world inside your inner HTML. It's just going to render those differences. So in that, it functions a lot like React's VDOM. Okay, so oh. that was a, that was uh, what I was going to ask, that it actually is a simple implementation, it sounds like, of a mm -hmm. virtual DOM mechanism for reconciliation. Yeah. And I want to say, like, the, the, the maintainer of that uh, library that works at Google, Justin, he's always going on about how tiny it is. I think it's like something like 2K, so speed, like performance and, and size is just what he's going for. And that's why I think like calling it a framework is a bit too much. Like, I don't think he'd ever call it a framework. He, it's, it's like a utility. So is, I'm looking at the uh, docs for this thing and I get confused because when I look at like TypeScript and ReactScript, it's just, you know, it's just confusing to me. And I, so I see this thing, it's like HTML and then backtick and then HTML inside Mm -hmm. What the heck is that? Is that <laughs> is this like React where it's its own language and then it like spits out JavaScript and HTML? Or is this like a new thing in JavaScript that you can just type yes, HTML backtick and it's like document.write? Or what is that? Yeah, it's, it's exactly JavaScript. It's yeah. basically uh, HTML is essentially the name of a function. So when you 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 apply it like that, when you put in a function name and follow it by a template literal, it essentially applies that it's it's it applies that function to that template literal in a sense. Yeah. Uh, so you the, want to elaborate on that, Ben? Yeah. So like just to apply some technical names to things, the the HTML function is what's called a tag template literal. It's basically it's hard to explain because I never really I never really deal deal like make my own, but it, it basically takes template literal strings and does its own processing on them. So so lit HTML has this HTML tag template literal. It's just a function that does this processing, does that diffing. A lot of folks don't know what even template literals are the new the new syntax with the backticks. Basically, it's a new type of string. Maybe it's not so new anymore. It's at least a couple of years old now. But basically, you don't have to worry about line breaks in there. It, it you know you put line breaks in there. It, it captures those just fine. But more importantly, you can inject uh, variables with this syntax, like a dollar sign, curly braces, variable, and and curly braces. Um, so you can inject variables in there. So it's it's just basically a new type of string that lit HTML capitalizes on. Yeah, what the way I use the template literals is, and it's really nice is when, you know, just you're trying to put together a string, you know, that has combination of variables and and hard coded text, and mm -hmm. instead of having to do quote text plus variable name 
plus another quoted string, plus whatever, you can just do it all within backticks without worrying about the concatenation inside it as you build the string. Yeah. So if you think about it, uh, lit HTML doesn't really do all that much. All it does is take these template literals and kind of say, okay, what did I have before with these variables? And how did they change? And you know, how does how does that change what I render? And if nothing changes, then it doesn't do anything. And if one thing changes, then it you know changes that much of your markup or whatever you're doing. Just a comment about that. So for those of us who are familiar with other programming languages, template strings in JavaScript are kind of similar to format strings in Python. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing here, and I think it's, by the way, I think, I think this mechanism with HTML and the template string is also supported by uh, Preact. I think Jason Miller, who, who's the creator of Preact, kind of also worked on that. He also works at Google, so it could be that they collaborated on it. But you know, the React solution, which uses uh, JSX, mm -hmm. essentially breaks JavaScript. You, yeah. you, need, you need a preprocessor. Used to, uh, effectively, it's Babel these days. But you need a preprocessor in order to transform JSX into actually actual valid JavaScript. What's really cool about these uh, te uh, tag template strings is that they're perfectly legal JavaScript. Yep. So you don't need any pre-processing in order to support this mechanism. But it doesn't change the fact that if your editing environment is familiar with it, then you'll get all the syntax highlighting and, uh, and the uh, tag matching and, and stuff like that, uh, which makes it really, really nice. It does have its downsides as well, but because you are working inside a string and so on, you know, <laughs> there's upsides and downsides to everything. But I really like it as a mechanism. Mm -hmm. uh, my question was, so you're saying it is using reconciliation in order to avoid just uh, repainting the entire DOM and potentially losing DOM state and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, it, it is. And it kind of it kind of does that if you like I said if you look at if you look at the markup it writes if you're writing HTML it kind of injects these like comments into uh, like strategic places I'm I'm bad at describing this because I don't exactly know how it works but it uses these mark markup comments in your HTML to like mark these places and then somehow do the differencing that way but what like like I said what you don't end up with is an entire virtual DOM off to the side cool but you're saying that this library is not actually attached, as it were, to web components. That means I can use it with web components, I can use it without web components, and of course I can use web components without it, or I right. can use the combination of the two, which yep, apparently absolutely. is what you like to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I like to do, like, there's there's tons of different situations, like, we might all be familiar with using, um, you know, just, just doing UI. And in, in the case of UI, UI is great for declarative uh programming. But it, I've done, you know, there's cases like where I want to use the canvas, or I want to use like a video player, or I want to use some 3D. And there's no reason if you're just going to render a canvas element in HTML, there's no reason to use any of these tools, just use the web web component standards, create like a video player wrapper, create a 3D wrapper, and just interact interact with that aspect imperatively. And you know, like, we can do that. But at the same time, build up our UI, our 2D UI around that if that's what you're doing. And use whatever tools you want to do. That's that's one of the reasons I like web components. It's like, 
you know, if I was doing this to React, I feel like everything I do has to be bought into React. That canvas that I don't need any React helpers from, it's still going to have to be React. But with web components, it can be just like whatever I want, standard standard web things. And then my UI that I build up around that, those can all be individual web components built with whatever technologies I want, all mixed into the same app. Usually for 2D UI, it's going to be, for me right now, it's lit, lit element, lit HTML. But I like this mixing of technologies. Just use exactly what you need for your component. Okay, um, so the the big thing that no one has ever been able to solve in the entire history of the internet that, <laughs> you know, people for, you know, what is it, 20 years now, 30 years now, people have been dying for it, a combo uh-huh. box. <laughs> okay, everybody reinvents the combo box. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think one of the reasons for that is with the frameworks, I, I mean, it's just, it, they're so tightly integrated and so involved, you know, like with, with a, say, an input element. You can mm-hmm. style an input element. Yep. Like I can, I can plop in input, and then I can go in my style sheet, and I can be like, actually, make the border on this, you know, so it looks like a border. So I can tell this is an input easily, or whatever, mm-hmm. or you know, lighten up the color here, or change the font. Yeah. So, I think what a lot of us, especially those of us that are not really on the front end, have been praying that that the HTML fairy will bless us with a combo box that works as simply as an input, where if I needed to style something, I could just do that. Mm-hmm. So if I search web components combo box, it looks like I can get a combo box from a couple different sources without paying the cost of the framework. I'm right. not going to have to like buy into React or buy into Angular or Vue or whatever in order to just say super duper combo box element. Mm-hmm. Yep. But how does this stuff work between like the shadow DOM and the not shadow DOM? Can (laughs) I say, hey, you know what? Your combo box looks stupid. I want to style it so that the border is not green because that just seems dumb to me. Why would you make a green border on a combo box or a red one for that matter? Yep. (laughs) So can I do that? Can I get that? Or do I have to just like copy and paste the code and then change everything that I don't like about it? All of that. So there's there's options. One of the one of the rough around the edges things that are coming to web components is I think we have parts now and then there's theme. And it's been so long since I've even bothered with them that I probably gonna butcher this explanation. But there's the part of the part of the web component spec is that you can kind of reach in specially with these part and theme uh, selectors with CSS and style internals if they're set up to be styled. It has to be planned ahead of time to be able to do that. So the, the web component has to accept that. There are, uh, and like you say, when, like, you, when you say accept, what do you mean? Is it like Angular style where you have a attribute? Yeah, I think it's like that. I think it's, I think it's, and, and like I said, it's been so long since I've even worried about this because I'm building my own components and consuming specific design library. But yeah, so it's basically, I think it's an attribute. It's basically like accepts part or something like that. I'm butchering it, but your like your divs or whatever, your elements inside your web component would have to be marked with these things that say, say I can accept this. So that's one aspect. And it's, it's a shaky aspect because I don't even... I, I forget where a theme is on the standards track, and that's more powerful. 
The other way to do this is uh, CSS vars. So you can use CSS properties, CSS vars today. And so if you want that border color to be green and that border color is defined with a CSS var inside the web component, you can, you can just style that from outside and say, my CSS var of border color is green and that'll just pass right through your web component. That's no big deal. It's, it's when you run, you run into trouble with these like big style blocks where you want to define a bunch of stuff with CSS. But, but I couldn't do something like, okay, so I'm looking at this thing called UI5 combo box. And I don't know if UI5 is a framework or if it's just like there's some code I could copy. This one in particular. Uh, AJ, if I can interject, we actually had uh, Peter Musig from uh, SAP to talk about UI5 on JS Jabber <laughs> a while back on episode uh, 424. Uh, I, I vaguely remember this. <laughs> we, you've recorded too many episodes, AJ. <laughs> yeah, go on. I'm looking at this UI5 combo box and I'm thinking, uh, like what, what I'd like to do, and I, I, don't know, I don't even know. I don't even know how this would work because you've got like multiple layers of this thing because you've got like this, you've, you've got more than one thing. It's almost like you've got an input field, but then you've also got this drop down button and then, of course, you've got the pop-up that comes when you click on the drop-down button and so on. But I like I, ideally, I'd like to be able to say in my style sheet, UI5 combo box, open bracket, and then mm-hmm. apply some style. And then I don't think you do this in CSS, or maybe you do now. But then be able to say, okay, within the UI5 combo box, specifically the input element that's in there, do this. Or specifically the button that's in there, do this. Yeah. So that those type of things couldn't be done from the exterior of the component like you're, you're like you're suggesting. You can change the background color of that component with a CSS dialog. You could change like the font color cuz that'll carry through. Doesn't need basically like you can't target things with a selector inside the shadow DOM. That's that's basically what it boils down to. Um, so that's where part and theme attribute part and theme selectors would come in. But I I should also mention there are web component libraries that are purposely like kind of blank slate so you can go in and style them. I haven't used them, but I just want to bring up Lion Web Components from ING Bank. And I think Patternfly does the same thing from a big company. But there's a, there's a class of web components that are popping up like these that really allow for this extensibility. And I, you know, I haven't looked into them. I, I don't necessarily know how they do it, but that's their kind of purpose. You start with this like ugly, maybe not ugly, but just bare bones web component, and you kind of build it up from there using your own styles and patterns. And so the whole the whole idea of the shadow DOM is to create a, an intentional segregation or a wall between yep. the external CSS and the internal CSS. Now, yep. you know, if somebody wants to enable a certain amount of styling inside of their web components, I, I imagine they could support some sort of a text ad, string attribute, text attribute on the web component itself, where you would specify some CSS or something like that, and then they would just read that attribute and apply it internally inside the shadow DOM or something like that. But this, there is an intentional separation between what happens inside and outside the the shadow DOM, like Ben mentioned before, like uh, iframes. Like you don't expect your styles to carry into iframes that Mm -hmm. you embed on your page. And, And since UI5 was brought up, that actually touches on a, on a point that I wanted to make that from what I've seen, I, I've seen two main use cases for web components so far. And I'd be interested as to your thoughts on them and maybe you have additional use cases in mind. 
So the first use case is the one exemplified by UI5. SAP, SAP created this web component framework because they were buying lots of uh, companies. They wanted to all to have uh, a common look and feel, and they wanted to achieve that by moving everybody to a common library of components with uh, a similar functionality and, be- and standardized, let's say, functionality and behavior. But they found that a lot of the companies that they were buying were using various front-end frameworks. Some were using Angular, some were using React or Vue, whatever. So instead of creating these this library of components for each and every framework out there, they just build them as web components, which could be used from any framework. So one use case that I've seen for web components is that if I want to keep my options open with frameworks, I can uh, create visual components using web components and then reuse them regardless of which framework I'm actually using. Uh, the other use case that I've seen is the quote-unquote micro front-end type approach. We actually recorded an episode. It's not come out yet by the time we're recording this. It will probably come out before this one comes out with uh, Michael Gears, where he spoke about using uh, web components to create micro front-ends because he could then encapsulate a framework within a web component. So he would create a page, let's say, with two or three big web components uh, and inside of them actually use different frame, uh, frameworks or different versions of the same framework without having to worry about collisions between them. So these are the two main use cases that I'm familiar with that are applicable to web components. Uh, are yeah. there more that you can think of? Do you agree with these two? What, what are your thoughts on, on this? Yeah, I think kind of Really in line with what you said, you know, the the web component library I use every day is uh, Adobe Spectrum Web Components. It's Adobe's open source web component library. It has a, um, you know, a very specific design language for Adobe. And so that jives with what you're saying. And I'll add one more one more use case that I'm pretty uh, feel strongly about, which is encapsulating complexity. And I know you kind of captured that with talking about I have a framework inside this encapsulated space, but complexity means to me a, the Google Model Viewer component is a great example of this. It doesn't really have a design, but what it does is it has a 3D engine inside. And you can render and take photos of 3D models, use this component in augmented reality. So in that, I think another big use case is to capture a bunch of complex logic that you don't want to expose your users to and just have them be able to, you know, put something on a web page simply like a 3D model that takes thousands of lines of code to like instantiate. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it, the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow 
because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at javascriptjabber.com slash Raygun. Okay, so since we've been talking about web components at a high level and what they're used for, I want to know the nitty-gritty about creating them. So I'm going to write a web component. So I fire up my tool of choice, Sublime, an IDE, whatever. And I want to write a web component. What yep. kind of files do I create? What do I do? Yeah, so really all you need, if you're going very bare bones, like a hello world, you basically just need a, a JavaScript file and an HTML file. So your HTML file, you might include the script you're going to write, that JavaScript file. You'd include that script. And then in the body of your... HTML page, you'd, you know, write, you know, my custom tag. And that would, you just put that, that custom tag that you're going to make inside the body of your, your HTML. And then inside of your JavaScript, what you need to do is you need to create a class. Class extends HTML element. And then outside of that class body, you would write uh, custom elements dot define. I forget the order of the parameters, but it's like the, the class that you defined and then the tag you want to have it instantiated as. So that's all you need to make a web component. Once you've done that, it works. Nothing visual will happen on the screen, but it works. Inside your connected callback or your constructor, you can then actually, if you're not using the shadow DOM, I would void the constructor, but we're all... I don't, I don't want to confuse this. Let's talk about connected callback. So connected callback is what happens. That callback happens when the, the component first gets on the page. It's attached to the DOM. So at that point, you can just say, you know, this.innerHTML equals whatever you want. Make a template literal string of a bunch of divs or, you know, some text. And that will be the inside, the inside bits of your component. And then that same inner HTML, if you're, if you're going super bare bones like this, um, it can contain a CSS string to style everything. And that's basically like the, the, all you need to create a hello world web component. But like I said, like you can go even a little more streamlined and go with lit element and go from there. But, you know, I don't want to go too complicated. So go with basic hello world. So now you've written a web component. You you said, Dan mentioned, I think, that one of the benefits is that it can be shared. So are you creating like a library and putting on NPM? How is it that you're, these web component files are then utilized in other places? Yeah, so you can put a you can put a web component on npm. I know that the Polymer team is actually in process of creating a custom elements manifest, so that'll that'll help your you know IDEs and discoverability. Uh, this one JSON file that contains a bunch of details about that. But yeah, share this on npm. I, I think you know what we're really being pushed for these days is using uh, ES modules. So uh, define that you know main entry points and embed you know, embed your web component as a module on your page. You don't need to, but that's kind of the, the best practice. But yeah, just publish to NPM and you're you're pretty much good to go. Just Yeah, yeah I, I wanted to add to that. It's just to, to, to clarify this important point. It's just a JavaScript file. Yeah. That, that's that's all it is. There, there's nothing, there's no special sauce or extension or whatever. It's just a JavaScript file that uses standard DOM APIs to specify that a particular JavaScript class is going to be used as the implementation for a new HTML tag. 
That's it. And by the way, uh, that's also some of the critiques against this mechanism because it kind of forces you to put everything inside JavaScript. So it's HTML inside JavaScript, it's CSS inside JavaScript. There's this whole of argument about CSS in JS. So obviously, if you're going with the current, at least, standards for web components, you're kind of forced into this camp of uh, CSS in JS. Well, tell me, like, tell me, like, I don't know this for certain, but I don't think CSS and JS is what you just described. I know it's technically CSS strings in JavaScript, but I thought CSS and JS was like inline styles that you'd, you'd put. Maybe, maybe it's a different thing. Well, that's the extreme case. I okay. mean, if, yeah, if but, I... but at the end of the day, from my perspective, and other people might have a different perspective, if you're putting your CSS inside your JavaScript bundles mm -hmm. instead of inside files with a CSS extension, presumably, that you have a direct link to, then effectively you're doing uh, CSS in JS. Yeah, and this is what this is why going forward, hopefully the the import of CSS modules will land soon. Then we don't have to do this anymore. So if I am understanding correctly, it looks like you can use a normal link element inside of a web component, but the problem is that then you have the flash of unstyled content where something comes up and it doesn't have the right colors or the right fonts or the right style or whatever. And then a second later, it all goes there because the component will load before the style has loaded. And so the convention has been to do like, so you know, you do like a var my special div thing equals document dot create element div, and then you do the my special div thing dot style equals, and then you put a template string. And then if you from what I was looking at over here, it sounds like if you need the same styles on multiple parts of a component, you just reuse the same template string or copies of the template string, but it's okay because as long as the strings are actually the same, the browser will parse it away into a single style. So if I had like six different places where I do font size is 12 PT or 1.5 EM or whatever, that all gets reduced away because it the, the browser will parse the stuff inside the web components and make it more efficient or I guess just make it as efficient as it would with anything. Literally. Yeah. So I haven't I haven't had the flash of unstyled content in practice. And I, I feel like it's probably because when you're using the Shadow DOM, you standard standard practice is to set the HTML of your component in the constructor. And the constructor happens before the the actual component on, is on the page. So so it goes it gets into your shadow dom and then by the time your component gets out of the page your content should all be there i mean there might be well right but if you used a link tag that would not be true cuz the link tag would go on the page and oh, that yeah, would yeah. cause the browser to go fetch the style sheet fair enough yeah 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 so you have to do the css strings in javascript mm -hmm. which unless you're using the backtick operator is just going to look super super nasty. Oh yeah, especially like new lines and all that jazz, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's why the backtick operator was introduced. I mean, the whole concept that JavaScript whether on the front end or whether on the back end, you're going to be dealing with with HTML, so at the very least make it a, give a reasonable or uh, mechanism for embedding portions of HTML strings inside your code, you know, good or bad. 
Uh, and, and realistically, in almost all the examples of, of uh, web components that I've seen, they usually have a fairly large template string inside the constructor. I think it's, yeah. it's kind of like, uh, because just create, you could create everything with, you know, with document.createElement, but then it becomes a whole lot of code. Yeah. So unless you've got a good reason to do that, like your code is really dynamic, then you're probably going to prefer some sort of a, of a template string. I mean, the other thing about document.createElement is like you're you're doing imperative things and you're you're not going to use like you're not going to use declarative programming in this, which is kind of standard these days. So it's document.createElement is, you know, fine for small scale things like I've used it in components, like I've said before, like 2D like canvas or 3D canvas components where I'm just creating a canvas and that's all I need to do with it. So that's fine. But when you're creating a lot of markup, you kind of don't want to go that way. Yeah, I'm just amused that it's become a, a best practice to embed code inside strings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, move move with the times, I guess. <laughs> I know, by the way, that there were other things beside web components that we wanted to, to speak with you about. Amy, you, you kind of brought up additional subjects that you also wanted to talk about. Yeah, one thing that I'm going to be looking at soon is TensorFlow, but using it on the front end with TensorFlow.js. Mm-hmm. So I really have not dug into this too far yet. I'm kind of curious, like your experience with it, what you've done, that sort of thing. Yeah, so I can tell you about my experience with it. And I think it speaks to how well the project is going that I can speak to my experience with it without really telling you how it works. So my experience with it is I've been using it for pose estimation and and, and facial feature estimation. So I had a project with the De Young Museum in San Francisco last year. We were doing a, a live exhibit for kids and they would come in and they'd draw their own like co- like superhero costumes on real paper. We'd scan them in and then you could wear what they could wear that what they drew in this web component based experience I, I built and so it was it was fun but the tensorflow aspect you're just you're grabbing the tensorflow js from google you're pulling it down and you're using some very specific models like the the pose estimation model later i found the the face mesh model but the the pose estimation model it basically in real time like super fast it it uses a camera feed or a video feed and it just it tells you you know where your wrists are where your torso is just where different points are on your skeleton and you can overlay that over your video feed and that's kind of how I accomplished this so okay. from, so from a usability standpoint it's awesome but at the same time, when you say you want to use TensorFlow.js, you probably want to go so much more level, low level than I did and use it for like tiny little uh, machine learning tidbits. So I think it's I think it's it's fascinating in that regard. But I just went for the big hit. Like I want to generate <laughs> a, I just want to generate a face mesh and like draw things over it. So it's super easy to use in that regard. So, yeah, it was fun. OK. I'm I'm excited to look at it. We're just wanting to do some stuff on the client versus, you know, the normally we do everything on the back end. So mm-hmm. uh, I didn't even know it existed until a couple of weeks ago. So yeah, yeah. No, uh, I, I I went to there's a developer evangelist Jason Mays. He did a earlier this year. He did a show and tell for TensorFlow folks. You should check out that video. What people are doing just to get a sense of like everything that we've done in it. It's it's pretty amazing. So look up the TensorFlow JS show and tell. Sounds cool. Thank you. Yeah. By the way, if you're into machine learning, especially from JavaScript, I highly recommend looking at the stuff that uh, Charlie Gerard is doing. 
you know, follow her on Twitter. She's uh, Dev Dev Charlie there. Uh, mm -hmm. She's posting a lot of amazing stuff. Uh, we also did a not, yeah, go for it. Oh, no, no, you finish and then I'll chime in. Sorry. All I was saying is she's doing some amazing side projects. Like she did some some sort of Mortal Kombat type game where she actually moved the character by doing the actual moves in front of, of a <laughs> webcam and, and stuff like that. She, she does really amazing stuff with uh, machine learning. In, from the front end. We also had a show, man, it was probably like two months ago. Actually, I don't even know. Maybe it was like pre-COVID. Um, <laughs> we did a show on, it was a professor in Iowa who was teaching machine learning, but he chose JavaScript instead of Python. Mm -hmm. Yes, I remember. I need to find it in a minute. But basically, he claimed that he actually enjoyed it more that way, that he, and that he got better performance, and also that he could use the same programming language, both on the front end and on the back end, which is always, well, usually an advantage. Before we conclude and move to picks, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that you actually gave a talk uh, that you can people can see on YouTube about web components in space. Yeah. Uh, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the Google Polymer team just started having uh, web component meetups before the pandemic. They've done one other one that was remote, but the first one in San Francisco I spoke at, and my, my hook was in space, we're doing, like, I want to look at web components from this perspective of in space where we're doing weird things to adapt to the environment. We're doing crazy things you shouldn't have to do on Earth, just as lessons, like how awesome are web components and what they're capable of. So my, my kind of like closing experiment showpiece was I took Babylon.js, which is a 3D rendering engine um, in JavaScript, and I actually rendered some web component generated UI in there, and I was using it in a VR headset. So I had a, I had a 3D sphere uh, on the side, and I made a color picker in just normal 2D web components, lit elements. You, know, you pick a color, change transparency and whatnot. And I was using this in VR with my VR controllers and changing the, uh, the color on that sphere right inside VR. It was pretty cool. By the way, it turns out that there was an actual use of web components in space. Yes, uh, SpaceX. By, space, by SpaceX. Yeah, so do you know anything about that? I think I'd know more than I should say. So I'm going to be quiet. <laughs> Why? Is it top secret or something? It's, it's, I, I, I know someone that, that worked there. I don't know too much about it, honestly, but at risk of, at risk of like saying things I shouldn't say, which is not much anyway, I'll just be careful and not say anything. <laughs> Got it. I can say from an article that I just found that the recent uh, SpaceX Dragon launch brings JavaScript to space. And that on the Dragon, the interface makes extensive use of web components and custom reactive framework. So apparently they built some of the displays in the spacecraft itself using JavaScript with web components, which I guess is kind of brave of them. <laughs> but just goes to show that JavaScript is in fact everywhere. And with that, I think I'll move us over to Pix. Hey folks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been working a lot on figuring out how to help people become the most valuable developers on their teams or becoming the top 5% of developers in the field. If you're looking to level up, figure out how to contribute more, get the career you want, get the career that you want that will support the lifestyle you want, then you should check out the Most Valuable Dev Summit. 
I've invited some of my friends across the community, people that you've heard of, people that have worked on systems that you use on a daily basis, people who have invented new ways of doing things over the years in programming, and I've asked them one question, and that question is, how do you become a top 5% developer? How do you become one in 20 of the best developers out there? And so we're going to go ahead and have that conversation with them in interviews on the Most Valuable Dev Summit. And you can find that at summit.mostvaluable.dev. Steve, do you want to start? Why did I know you picked me first? So don't have anything particularly new of my own. I'm going to pick something that a friend of mine has, believe it or not. And, you know, usually when new computers come out or new models, something like that, everybody talks about, oh, how they're faster and better and this and that. This one seems to be legit. And a buddy of mine just scored one of the new 13-inch M1 MacBook Pros. And Ooh, that sounds cool. And I was, he was using it the other night. I was over at his house and, and uh, he was telling me about it. He says the speed and the battery life are off the charts better. He said he spent, for work one day, he said he probably spent 12 to 13 hours straight with his on and still had a bunch of battery power left over. So much, much better than, you know, the the battery life I've experienced on the MacBook Pros. And he said it's much, much faster too. The current models that are out are only the 13 inch and only up to 16 megabytes of RAM, but it's still so much faster. And like I said, the crazy battery life. Battery life. So anyway, that's my pick. Does it also fart rainbows? <laughs> uh, I didn't see any, but I can't. I can neither confirm nor deny that. I do, uh, you know, obviously it's going to have a long-lasting uh, battery life. I mean, that was kind of the whole point of using uh, the architecture that's prevalent in mobile devices in, in uh, laptops. But it's, it's the performance aspect that's uh, really exciting. The fact that they can actually get it to the same levels and beyond of uh, the existing CPU architectures from Intel, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Anyway, moving along, Amy, what about you? I'm going to go with uh, something I found. I get pretty much everything I ever pick from Hacker News. Uh, <laughs> but this was back in the summer. But it's a. I see more and more people doing this, and that is cost of living. Or I'm sorry, you're, you're paid based on where you live. So based on like the cost of living. So if you live in a place where... Uh, the cost of living is lower, your salary will be significantly less than somebody who, say, lives in New York City or London or San Francisco. But this in, this article kind of points out some interesting things that maybe people aren't necessarily uh, considering, which would be like, you know, traditionally, if you live in the rural suburbs, you know, your, your you know, taxes may be less, but also you have to send your kid to a public school because the schools are really bad. So it kind of talks about stuff like that. And I don't know that I have a firm opinion on the matter, but this just gave me some stuff to consider. So that'll be my pick. I'm trying to think if I have anything else. I don't know what you're talking about. Everything I have lately is infrastructure. So I'll just leave it at that for now. What I would mention about that is that I'm speaking to a lot of people who are actually moving from the city, from let's say from San Francisco, to more rural or cheaper areas. And it's interesting to see whether or not their employers are actually downgrading their salaries because now they're living presumably at a lower cost area and 
don't need to earn as much, it seems. Yeah. I mean, I will say I didn't necessarily pick Nashville because I wanted to come to Nashville. I picked Nashville because it was relatively close to my family. It was a semi-large city, but the cost of living was pretty low. So not necessarily be the place I would pick to live, but, you know, I'm here and making the most of it. So. <laughs> yeah, but you were living in Nashville when you joined your current employer. In fact, as I recall, you were living I was, in Nashville I was. when you joined yeah. your previous employees. Yep, employers. Yep. I've been I'm, here for I'm, a while now. Yeah, I'm speaking about a different scenario where people, let's say, yeah. work for some company and they're living in San Francisco. And then because with COVID, they're working from home anyway. They're thinking, you know, I might as well work from home in Illinois yeah. or something. Yeah. So uh, that's that's the interesting scenario right now, I think. Anyway, AJ, what about you? You always have interesting picks. All right. Well, good news. One of the only things that we ever actually needed in the web spec in regards to caching finally arrived in every browser except for Safari last of year. <laughs> Shocking. Um, <laughs> S max age and stale while invalidate. This lets you do something like say the max age is 10 minutes, which is ridiculously low, but then say that stale while invalidate is a year, meaning that if someone comes to a page and they have a resource in cash, use the resource in cash. Like why this wasn't created before app cash and service workers and all the other nonsense that we have. Cause this is the simple solution to the problem. All we need, this is, this is it. This is all we needed. We didn't need all that other stuff. We just needed stale while invalidate. And now we have it. So uh, I'm not too bummed that Safari doesn't have it. I don't think that makes it not worth using because I don't know. I mean, I guess there's a lot of people out there that are on Safari, but I guess we'd have to look at usage stats. I mean, I would imagine most people that if you're on a Mac and someone sees you using Safari, they probably, you know, come smack you upside the back of the head and say, <laughs> you know, get a browser already, fool. I will tell you that in quote unquote rich countries, what we're seeing at Wix is that the majority of users on mobile devices are actually Safari because with iOS, you really don't have a choice. Yeah. So well, on the I guess Mac, that's true. Yeah, on the Mac, you can say, I prefer to use Chrome or whatever. You can even use Microsoft Edge now. But uh, on on iOS, it's it's just Safari. Even if you're th you think that you're using Chrome, it's actually a Chrome wrapper around Safari. Right, right. Well, the good news is that if that's the case and you're using e-tags because you didn't like roll your own cache thing from scratch and you just grabbed an off-the-shelf library that helps with caching, like what's built into Express or whatever, your e-tag is going to be like a SHA sum or something of the file resource. And so there's going to be a round trip and then you're going to get, I forget what the code is for like no new content, but you know, it's not going to break things if you, it's, it's not like it's going to go re-download the page if you're, you know, if you, if you follow this strategy of um, using smax age and stale while invalidate it's just going to it's just going to make a request that gets back a no response body with a content found status code so you know no big deal um, you know, one quick thing AJ. the only downside i see to that whole thing is that with the prevalence of debit and credit cards that you have to use cash can be sort of limiting okay two other ones here actually i was going to pick this one first i just found out moments ago and my download just finished seconds ago that ready player two is released I really loved Ready Player One. I thought Armada was pretty good as well. 
I don't see how he could possibly replicate the success or the awesomeness of Ready Player One. And by the way, if you saw the movie, that was not Ready Player One. I've that heard that like, in a lot of places. It was just a totally different story almost. Oh, yeah. It it was almost bad as Jurassic Park 2. Like you read the book Jurassic Park 2, amazing story. You watch the movie Jurassic Park 2, you'd start to lose respect for the franchise. <laughs> and same thing, like Ready Player One, it, it just, oh, it, it, there was too much showing or telling rather than showing where they're like, it's easy to get lost in the Oasis, even though everyone looks like monsters and this is nothing like reality. Whereas in the book, like the Oasis was is indistinguishable from reality aside from people basically, you know, put makeup on, they lost a few pounds. There wasn't like some people were monsters or maybe there were, but I, I don't know. Like in the book, you really got the picture that this is something that you could go into and get lost in and forget that the outside world existed. Whereas in the movie, it was like special effects. <laughs> so anyway, not sure how ready player two is going to equal, you know, either I, I I'd be really surprised if it's even as good as Armada just because, you know, sequels are hard to, it's hard to come up with a sequel when you're like, well, that was really successful. Let me continue it. As opposed to something like Mistborn where it's like, well, I already know what the ninth book is going to be. And I'm going to deliver this three trilogy. And the first book is standalone all by itself, you know, like, so we'll see, we'll see. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he actually did plan it out to be a trilogy or whatever it is, but I hadn't heard of that before. Anyway, I'm, I got it anyway. And also I have to pick open audible. Open Audible is a program that allows you to save backups of your audiobooks and make them compatible with any device that you want to play them on. And it's a it's it's a paid thing, but it's like 10 or 20 bucks. It used to be open source, but then they went to paid. And I totally worth it to be able to know that my audio library isn't going to just disappear one day, my auto my audiobook library. And that's that's actually what I started using Audible again because of Open Audible. And then last thing. Leah Remini, Scientology in the Aftermath. So I have heard stuff about Scientology, but I, you know, I just kind of brushed it off because people say, you know, weird things and conspiracy theories about all sorts of stuff. But uh, this, uh, this documentary feels pretty compelling. And, and I think that it's really timely in terms of the kind of things that are going on in society, like the types of things that are going on in government, government manipulations, media manipulations, stuff like that. I just, saw a lot of parallels between what happened in the, I forget the name of it already, but like the city where Scientology started and then took over the government and then uh, some of the other political turmoil that's happened, especially this year. And and I just think it's something to be aware of. Like I, I'd had friends tell me because I had run-ins with some Scientologists here or there, like I dialed a wrong number once and it was a Scientology hotline and like a buddy of mine got really freaked out and he was like, do not give them your address. Do not talk to them. Like it could be bad. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, they're just like missionaries for their church or whatever. How bad could it be? But watching the documentary, I am a little bit more concerned. I don't really want to have casual contact with those, with those, with those people from, from that. So interesting, kind of scary. Check it out. My picks will pull us back to tech. So my first pick is that friend of the show, Kyle Simpson, Getify on everywhere. His You Don't Know JavaScript book series, which is actually available for free on GitHub, has crossed uh, 130,000 stars, which I think is excellent because it's an excellent series. It's an amazing resource, and we should all be grateful to Kyle for putting such an amazing resource out there 
for free effectively. Obviously, if you want to support Kyle, you can actually purchase a copy. Hey, Dan, uh, has that book been updated for ES6? I thought I heard him say one time that he had yet to do that. No, so he's, he's, it's partially. He is essentially he's rewriting his entire uh, series as you don't know JS yet. And he effectively plans to, in a certain, in a certain way to rewrite the entire series, not exactly book for book or intentionally not book for book. So it's not just an update to ES6 or whatever. It's also an update that's based on his greater understanding of JavaScript and how to teach JavaScript. And he's written two books out of the uh, new series. So uh, the introduction to JavaScript and another one, which I forget what it is, uh, have been rewritten. So you can actually find that as you don't know JS yet. Anyway, so that would be my first pick. My second pick is another person who has been here on our show before, is Noam Rosenthal. He spoke with us about contributing to the browsers themselves. And what I want to mention is a blog post that he just put out where he, he apparently he's working with the Wikipedia folks on improving the performance of Wikipedia. And he was researching the performance of the pop-ups that you get. If you've used Wikipedia, you've probably seen that if you hover over another Wikipedia link, you can actually you, you don't actually need to click it to see what it's about. When, when you over hover over the link, it actually opens this kind of a pop-up and you see a picture and some text so you know whether it's going to be interesting or relevant or not. So he was actually working or looking at the performance of that and ways in which this can be optimized. And he's written a really detailed blog post about it, which I was totally geeking out on because uh, I'm really into tech and I'm really into performance. But he actually takes it to the next level because he also discusses how the browsers themselves could be enhanced to provide uh, greater performance or better performance in such common use cases like uh, pop-ups, which are you know, fairly common on the web. So that would be my second pick, that blog post, and I'll post the link into the show notes. And finally, we're back to you, Ben. Do you have any picks for us? Sure, sure. So I'll use my pick, as we, as we head into the holiday season when I'm hoping to have a little more spare time, I'll use my pick to guilt myself into using these tools more. So I've been kind of a VR enthusiast for a little while, and creative tooling is, I really love that stuff. But the problem is I can't, draw or sculpt that well. And my, my drawings and sculpts keep coming out just looking like garbage. So I need to improve this. So I promise I'm not in a, a company shell here, but Adobe just acquired um, Oculus Medium, which is an amazing VR sculpting tool. It's for like kind of organic shapes, super fun to use. My other pick around this is called Gravity Sketch. And Gravity Sketch is more for industrial drawings, straight lines, creating 3D models that way. And the last one is a really fun tool called Tavori. And it's for doing 3D animation in VR and like kind of VR and AR prototyping. So I want to use these tools more over the break and get better so I can actually show people like some stuff I drew and not be embarrassed. So those are my picks. Cool. So before we conclude, if people want to get in touch with you, either about web components or in general, how should they go about it? Yeah, sure. So my website is ben, benfarrell.com. So that's B-E-N 
Ben, F-A-R-R-E-L-L.com. You can write me there at Ben at Ben if you like. And my Twitter handle is BFarrell forever. Excellent. And with that, I think we conclude another show. So yeah, thanks thank for having you. me on. You're welcome. We enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, everybody. And thank you to our listeners. Bye. Adios. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.